0: On this week's edition of New York Now, amid escalating evictions and housing costs, we'll look at the overturning of Albany's good cause eviction law and what it means for New York State. And David Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room talks with Oasis Commissioner Chinazo Cunningham about state funding and priorities for treating addiction. Plus, we'll break down this week's news with Keisha Kluke of Bloomberg Government and Yancey Roy of Newsday. I'm Casey Seiler, and this is New York Now.
1: I will
2: fight like hell for you every single day. Like I've always done
3: and always
4: will.
0: Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union, in for Dan Clark. Last summer, Albany became the first city in New York to pass good cause eviction legislation. A year later, that law has been overturned. NOW, LEGISLATORS IN ALBANY ARE PLANNING TO APPEAL THE STATE SUPREME COURT'S DECISION. WITH GOOD CAUSE EVICTION LEGISLATION FACING AN UNCERTAIN FUTURE, TENANT AND LANDLORD ADVOCACY GROUPS ARE WONDERING WHAT'S NEXT. NEW YORK NOW PARTNERED WITH TIMES UNION REPORTER STEVE HUGHES FOR THIS REPORT ON THE STATE OF GOOD CAUSE EVICTION LEGISLATION IN NEW YORK. TAKE A LOOK. In July 2021,
5: Albany became the first city in New York to pass good cause eviction legislation. The law came at a time when a federal moratorium on evictions related to the COVID-19 pandemic was set to lapse.
3: The bill that we passed last July uh, took into consideration tenants concerns as well as landlords concerns. And we really drafted a bill that was fair to protect good landlords as well as good tenants. I think the... uh, the eviction moratorium was an emergency stop action by the state and by the country. Uh, but you know, good cause eviction is beyond that. It goes beyond the pandemic. It goes to the constant you know, day-to-day activity. It goes to the constant year after year protection of our, of our neighborhoods and protection of our residents.
5: Albany's good cause eviction law wasn't intended to be a moratorium on evictions. It stated that landlords needed a good reason to evict tenants. Some justifications for eviction included non-payment of rent, criminal activity, or substantial damage to the property. The legislation also set a 5% cap on rent increases. Any increases greater than 5% would require justification. The legislation was a win for tenant rights organizations like
2: United Tenants. For the first time in the 49 years the United Tenants has existed, it was the first time that we were able to tell tenants, you can't be evicted for no reason. There has to be a reason that you're being evicted. There has to be a reason that your rent is getting hiked. Advocates for the bill argued that landlords benefit when tenants
5: are able to stay in an apartment long term. They suggested long term tenants have a vested interest in the maintenance of a property, which raises property values over time, benefiting
2: the owners if this law was able to sustain itself it would give families the right to stay somewhere it would give kids the right to go to the same school the whole time It fights crime because you're not impoverishing families families aren't destitute looking for the next place to make a buck um, yeah it made a big impact
5: but albany's good cause eviction law was overturned in june 2022 by state supreme court judge christina reba judge reba's decision found that the city's
3: law was in conflict with a pre-existing state law the impact of it being pushed back at the local level versus the state uh, is that it now makes it so the it puts a pause or freeze on the expansion of it in different municipalities Uh, it also puts at risk all the other municipalities that have already passed it so that's why now the emphasis is to have the state act and the state take the lead on this uh, because we've done the hard work at the local level we're not passing the buck we did the work we did what we were supposed to. And now the courts have said it should have been the state. So now we have to ask our state partners to work with us.
5: Those partners include landlords who oppose the original good cause eviction law. Opponents argue that good cause eviction legislation negatively impacts development and unduly limits the rights of landlords to manage their property.
1: Basically, there's two things that will happen if good cause passes as it sits today. The one thing it will do is it will stop landlords from being able to Um, Increased rents past a certain point when they desperately need to make upgrades to their properties So they won't make the upgrades and two it's actually going to inhibit a resident from moving because if they are um, not (laughs) How do I explain this? A resident's not going to move if they think their rents are going to go through the roof. So they're going to stay where they are, and it's going to create less inventory, which is never good.
5: The future of Albany's good cause eviction legislation continues to be in limbo. The city of Albany is appealing the state Supreme Court's decision, which leaves tenants in the capital region not knowing what's next.
2: So, yeah, a lot of tenants are concerned after they began organizing on the back of good cause and essentially trying to enforce good cause outside of the courts through community development. Um, now they're saying, well, wait, are we protected still? Like, is this worth it? I would say it's even more worth it. And and that's why they're still organizing and trying to enforce it, even though the courts have said you can't have it right now.
1: We want to look for solutions that keep people in homes. And we want to look for ways to protect the residents that are following all the rules and paying their rent on time and not being disruptive. So. Um, In turn, we hope that that helps build vibrant communities and a place where other people wanna live and attract more people to New York.
2: The social benefit just never gets talked about because it's always like, this is what the bill is and this is how the landlords feel about it. And rarely do we get tenant voices. So I think just beyond like your kids getting to go to the same school and being closer friends with your neighbors, you get to actually develop your immediate local community. And there's a symbiosis in the community as a result of being able to stay
3: where you live. When we sit in a room sometimes together, we find out that there's more that brings us together than brings us apart. I think we did that in the city of Albany. I think uh, nobody got everything that they wanted. Uh, I got angry phone, phone calls from both sides of this issue, but I think we did something that was fair and we did something that was good for our residents and our property owners. I hope we can get this protection back for our residents because a lot of our residents for the last year Uh, felt that they had additional protections that they don't have now. uh, And eviction rates are are going through the roof. And to not have those protections for so many of our residents uh, is very worrisome. And I'm hoping we can get that back. I hope the state acts quickly to get those protections back uh, for our neighbors.
0: And now to this week's news, we're at the Reporters' Roundtable, where I'm happy to be joined by Yancey Roy of Newsday and Keisha Kluki from Bloomberg Government. Thanks very much for coming in. So we are now talking about a week after this incident in Rochester where gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin was accosted by a man wielding a sharp implement. Um, and that incident has been sucked into the ongoing debate pressed by Republicans uh, statewide over bail reform and other criminal justice changes, specifically over the the charge that that this uh, gentleman is facing.
4: Yeah, you know he is charged with a uh, what's considered really a nonviolent felony, um, ostensibly because no injuries occurred, as as I understand it and other reporters understand it. Um, so if you're charged with a nonviolent felony, that's not subject to uh, bail, and so he's been released, but he's been charged with federal crimes, as we know, and he's now under detention. It sort of gets at the issue of uh, judicial, when do judges have discretion? And they don't really have discretion under a lot of uh, charges right now, under a lot of crimes. But the issue is really whether people who are released go on to commit other crimes. And as we've reported and your paper has reported, that doesn't happen very often. In fact, in the last 12 months, the rearrest rate has kind of gone down uh, from what it was through the first 12 months of bail reform.
0: Um, uh, This also uh, is an issue because the district attorney in Monroe County, um, Sandra Dorley, um, was at least briefly a co-chair of Zeldin's campaign.
6: Yes, and I believe she tried to recuse herself from this, and um, there was a lot of discussion. I think the bigger picture on this is... You know, crime is already a huge issue with the campaign season going on. It's going to be a major topic in the governor's race. And Lee Zeldin is, now has this, you know, real-life example that he is um, touting on this. And I think Kathy Hochul is going to have to find some way to meet in the middle on it or at least address it in terms of voters. You,
0: you've, We've also seen Eric Adams, uh, mayor of New York City, of course, weighing in this week and saying it's time for the legislature to come back. Uh, for an extraordinary session to further address to, as it were, roll back the bail law changes. That does not appear to be in the offing, correct? Yeah,
6: I believe they said absolutely not. Um, They've already come back for a special session, um, and they don't necessarily want to come back. A lot of them are—because there's two primaries this year, a lot of people are out on the road— with for their campaigns and Kathy Hogel herself is campaigning. And um, yeah, so I don't think we'll see them come back, but it really depends on what happens, I guess, as we see the polling numbers. Right.
4: Yeah. Carl Hasty, the assembly speaker, has flat out said no. And he even said that some of the examples that Eric Adams is citing uh, have already been addressed in some of the amendments that they made through bail law reform.
0: Keisha, you had a a fascinating story about uh, changes that the state is making to sort of training and protocols around sexual harassment and other forms of abuse and toxic workplace atmospheres, um, uh, kind of uh, customizing it as it were for the age of the remote workplace.
6: Yes, yes. So um, every four years, this sexual harassment model policy um, has to be redone and, um, you know, put into uh, the current times. So uh, we spoke with employment um, attorneys and the state business council about what this new, these new changes to the policy could look like. And the issue is that businesses would theoretically have to update their policies to match the state. And Zoom has changed our lives dramatically in the past few years with the coronavirus. And so those experts were saying that it should be updated with Zoom Mind because you can still have sexual harassment over Zoom. Um, There's also needs to be some updates to. Co- uh, align with some of the state laws that had been put in place. Um, we made it easier for employees to bring up sexual harassment um, claims. Uh, that needs to be addressed and elaborated on a little bit more. Um, we've got a new sexual harassment hotline. Um, that should be put into the model policy. Um, and then also potentially adding some other protected classes, like, you know, race and uh, as well as sex, national origin, things like that. Um, so we're—they're the, collecting in comments till September 20th, and we'll see what that new policy includes.
0: The more platforms, the more complications, potentially, for sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, Yancy, meanwhile, we're talking about three weeks away from uh, the state senate and congressional primaries. Nobody covers Long Island better than Newsday. What are some of the, the races that you and yours are going to be watching as, as we tick down to early voting beginning?
4: Yeah, it's sort of unprecedented on Long Island. Um, there are four congressional seats. Three of them are wide open, no incumbent running for them. That's never happened before. And in the fourth seat, there is an incumbent, a guy who's been there all of a year and a half right now. So the main things to watch are uh, Democratic actions in Nassau. You've got a three way race to fill Kathleen Rice's seat, you've got a five way race to fill Tom Swasey's seat. The Republican action more in Suffolk, where the general theme is party-backed guys trying to fend off uh, Trump supporters in primaries. And then there's a fascinating state Senate primary. For the first time ever under redistricting, the state has created a plurality Hispanic district on Long Island, first time that's happened. And you've got two candidates, veteran candidates going there, Monica Martinez and Phil Ramos, sort of for the direction
0: of the party there on, in Suffolk County. Um, OF COURSE, LONG ISLAND USED TO BE SEEN IN THE STATE SENATE AS A bastion FOR REPUBLICANS. IS THERE ANY CHANCE THAT THEY WILL uh, EXPERIENCE A RESURGENCE OF THAT?
4: OH, I THINK THEY ARE DEFINITELY PREDICTING THAT. RIGHT NOW, IT'S uh, FIVE DEMOCRATS AND FOUR REPUBLICANS. THE REPUBLICANS THINK THEY WILL GET BACK A MAJORITY OF THE BLOCK OF NINE LONG ISLAND SEATS. Uh, But there's going to be some there's going to be some races where they're clearly Republican seats There's some that got at least two that the Democrats are going to win and then all the rest are up for grabs
0: meanwhile sort of expanding the picture a little bit there was this um, uh, interesting uh, sort of social media scissor fight between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Jessica Ramos um, this week where there was there was some sniping specifically from Ramos Um, Do we do we know what's behind that?
4: Well, I think what we're seeing is general dissatisfaction maybe from some people on the left, voicing, basically saying that they think uh, Ocasio-Cortez, while being the face of the left in New York, hasn't uh, been as
0: effective as some people would want. Yanti, of course, this is likely to be an extremely narrow battle for control of the House of Representatives. Um, Are there prospects for uh, Long Island to essentially be the decider? Well, it's going to factor in for
4: sure. Long Island is considered like one of the more purple areas of the state where it kind of fluctuates between Republican and Democratic control. Uh, Right now, uh, Republicans have two of the four seats, Democrats have the other two, but really all of them are kind of up for grabs. Um, Under, in the Kathleen Rice seat, uh, probably the leading Democrat right now is Laura Gillen, who is the Hempstead town supervisor trying to revive her career. And the really interesting one is the Swazi seat the Republicans are all behind George Santos and think that they have a shot to win that even though it's a slightly Democratic seat. And the question is among these five Democrats who are battling after it's all over in August, are they all going to unite <laughs> behind the person right. is there, or is the candidate going to be damaged by the primary? Is the person going to come out to be too far left,
0: too far right for the party to get behind? All right. Well, that's where we're going to have to leave it. So thanks very much to Yancey Roy from Newsday and Keisha Kluke from Bloomberg Government. We really appreciate your coming in.
6: Thanks for having us.
0: In June 2021, Attorney General Letitia James announced that New York would receive nearly $230 million in settlement funds from opioid makers. Now plans are being made for how those funds will be used to treat and prevent addiction across the state. Commissioner Chinazo Cunningham from New York's Office of Addiction Services and Supports will help manage the distribution of those funds through the Opioid Settlement Fund Advisory Board. To learn more about the task that lies ahead, David Lombardo of the Capitol Press Room spoke with OASIS Commissioner Cunningham. Take a look.
7: Well, welcome back to the show, Commissioner. I really appreciate you making the time for us again.
8: Great. Happy to be back.
7: So prior to the Opioid Settlement Fund Advisory Board convening its first meeting in June, state lawmakers and Governor Kathy Hochul identified more than $200 million in settlement funds that they wanted to spend in this fiscal year. What sort of input will the board have in figuring out how that money actually gets spent?
8: The, the um, advisory board uh, definitely will have input. We're um, looking for them uh, to provide recommendations and we will consider uh, their recommendations on how to spend, you know, the money that exists.
7: Uh, THE BOARD'S UNLIKELY TO MAKE ANY FINAL RECOMMENDATIONS uh, UNTIL THIS FALL, Uh, SO given THAT TIMELINE, IS THAT ENOUGH TIME FOR STATE OFFICIALS LIKE YOURSELF TO ACTUALLY DIGEST THE INFORMATION THAT THEY'RE GETTING FROM THE BOARD uh, WHILE STILL SPENDING THIS MONEY, MORE THAN $200 MILLION PRIOR TO THE END OF THE FISCAL YEAR, WHICH IS MARCH 31ST OF 2023?
8: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. You know, clearly we're in the worst overdose epidemic we've ever experienced um, in the state and in this country. And so we're very mindful of wanting to be able to spend money to expand services so that we can save lives. Um, But at the same time, we're obviously we need to balance that with the recommendations of the board. So, you know, we've already had four meetings with the board. Um, You know, and our hope is to really sort of move things along so that we can receive their recommendations, so that we can spend the money, you know, in a timely way. We really don't want to wait, but yet, you know, at the same time, we want to make sure that we get the recommendations from them.
7: I believe under statute, uh, a recommendation is due to the legislature. I think in November, so that would give you, you know, four or five months to actually spend the money. Is that timeline doable, or would you like to see an accelerated process from the board?
8: Yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're asking ourselves the same question, and you're absolutely right that a report is due on November first to the legislature and to the executive branch. Um, you know, I think that um, this is new. The, the board. And so, you know, we're it's it, I think we're still sort of all finding our way in terms of making sure that that the board has um, is making thoughtful recommendations. So um, it is a balance. You know, I think there's a sense of urgency, um, but there's also a sense to make sure that we're not um, that we're that we're being thoughtful about how the money is being used and so that the money can be impactful and really saving lives. So um, so we you know, like I said, we have, we've had four meetings just in the last two months, right. um, which is a lot, and we have a you know additional meetings that are planned for the coming months, and so we, we will see. Um, but we certainly feel an urgency because we know that people are dying at the highest rates we've ever seen, and, and we wanna do everything we can to save lives.
7: Well, you've talked about uh, in previous interviews your desire to listen to the board and really consider their input. In practice, though, what will that actually look like? Is there going to be some sort of formalized process for reviewing whatever the board produces? Or, as some cynical people might think, is this more about giving them a pat on the head and sending them on their way and then doing whatever you want?
8: So I think, you know, the board is really working on a rubric and a framework in order to really guide their recommendations. And that's really what they've spent a lot of time um, in the last few meetings discussing. Um, ultimately, the recommendations go to the legislature and the executive branch. And then from that decisions are made. Um, so, you, you know, I think it's it's certainly a process that they're working on their end right now. Um, and then we'll see what we get. Um, but But, you know, those recommendations do go to the legislature and the executive branch.
7: If the board ends up recommending that EVEN A TINY FRACTION OF SETTLEMENT MONEY IS FOR say, MORE CONTROVERSIAL PURPOSES LIKE uh, HARM REDUCTION POLICIES SUCH AS OVERDOSE PREVENTION CENTERS uh, WHERE PEOPLE WITH SUBSTANCE ABUSE PROBLEMS CAN uh, BASICALLY CONSUME ILLEGAL DRUGS uh, LEGALLY. IS THERE A SENSE THAT THE HOCHLE ADMINISTRATION WOULD ACTUALLY CONSIDER THOSE POLICIES AND IMPLEMENT THEM OR IS THAT KIND OF IDEA DEAD ON ARRIVAL?
8: Um, So the governor, Governor Hochul has not, um, you know, taken a stance on overdose prevention centers Um, and we uh, at the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Supports, we don't fund and we don't regulate uh, overdose prevention centers. However, harm reduction is very much a strategy that is embraced um, by myself and by the governor. Um, And, you know, harm reduction includes really a range of services and an approach. So those kinds of services that harm reduction would include is an expansion of naloxone, right? So that's what we give people when they're overdosing, and that saves lives. Um, it also includes uh, meeting people where they are, um, literally and figuratively. So if people are not ready for treatment, there are still services that can be provided that can reduce the risk of overdose. This is fentanyl test strips is one of the other you know, key harm reduction strategies that we're trying to really expand as well. Um, you know, doing outreach, so meeting people on the streets, giving them the education and the materials that they need, linking them into treatment and, and providing treatment in a way that really is easy and accessible. And so, you know, instead of waiting two weeks for an appointment, um, being able to get services on demand at the, at the moment that somebody's ready for treatment. So those are the kinds of things um, that really are, uh, that, you know, use a harm reduction principles and a harm reduction approach. And and we are actually doing those things um, now at, at OASAS. And so one example is we've had, a um, you know, an initiative where we're bringing mobile uh, medication units out to communities that don't have uh, methadone treatment available. So we're bringing the treatment to where people are, trying to reduce barriers and make it easier for people to access life-saving treatment. So. Absolutely embracing harm reduction, especially as we are at the worst overdose epidemic ever, we really need to focus on saving lives and harm reduction focuses on that. It's reducing harms uh, in many ways uh, and really making it easy and accessible for people to, um, to access services.
7: Have you, in a personal capacity or as a commissioner of Oasis, uh, had a chance to visit the two operating overdose prevention centers in New York City? And and if so, what's your thoughts about them?
8: So prior to becoming the uh, commissioner here at Oasis, I worked in the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Um, And so it was during that time um, when I was there in which the overdose um, prevention centers opened um, so I did work with the city uh, and other city agencies uh, during that time. Um, so, you know, I also have to say, David, I've spent so I'm a physician mm-hmm. um, and I've worked in the field of addiction for over twenty years. I work in the South Bronx, which has been experiencing an, an opioid epidemic for for decades. Um, and I saw firsthand how difficult it was for people to get treatment twenty years ago, fifteen years ago. So I, DEVELOPED PROGRAMS WORKING VERY CLOSELY WITH HARM REDUCTION ORGANIZATIONS IN NEW YORK CITY TO REALLY PROVIDE SERVICES IN A WAY THAT PEOPLE WOULD FEEL ACCEPTABLE. AND SO, I PERSONALLY DID OUTREACH IN THE BRONX AND IN HARLEM, ON STREET CORNERS, IN HOTELS THAT ARE SINGLE ROOM OCCUPANCY HOTELS WHERE PEOPLE WHO WERE HOMELESS, um, YOU KNOW, HAD TEMPORARY EMERGENCY SHELTER, TO REALLY BRING SERVICES TO WHERE PEOPLE ARE AND TO MEET THOSE WHO ARE AT THE HIGHEST RISK. And the most marginalized, and so for for decades I have been really um, practicing harm reduction and working with harm reduction organizations to be able to get services to, to the most marginalized people, and certainly now as a commissioner, you know, my role in government is to make sure that those who are most marginalized and at highest risk have services, um, and so you know for me it's a little bit of a no-brainer to embrace right. harm reduction here, you know I think that. Um, you know, it's it's now being embraced more across the country. Um, and, you know, for some it's new, but for others it's really been uh, what's been happening for decades. So, um, so it's about bringing people along um, so that we can really focus on saving lives. And we know that harm reduction approaches are evidence-based. There's decades of research that shows that harm reduction approaches work, saves lives, reduces complications and improves community outcomes as well.
7: Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Chinazo Cunningham. She is the commissioner for the State Office of Addiction Services and Supports. Dr. Cunningham, as always, thank you so much for making the time and go Washington
1: Huskies. Thank you, David.
0: If you or someone you care about needs support to overcome addiction, call the New York Hope Line at 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text Hope NY. That's 467-369. Phone lines are operated 24-7 and calls are, of course, confidential. And that's all we have time for on this edition of New York Now. Dan Clark will be back next week. Until then, have a great week and be well.